This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. SiteRight is the first legal technology product I've seen that will directly impact my practice. I'm a litigator and I do a lot of research and a lot of writing that applies and accordingly must cite that research. SiteRight automates the process of writing footnotes and preparing supporting documents, such as a book of authorities, that use those footnotes. SiteRight also does more. For example, the product has a sort of social function that allows users within an organization to share precedents and maximize the usefulness of their research. Aaron Wenner is the CEO and founder of SiteRight. In this conversation, he talks about the product he coded and the legal problems it fixes in a simply elegant way. We also dig into Aaron's past to understand his path from a Harvard degree to McGill Law School, to articles in McCarthy Tetro, ultimately to entrepreneurship and creating SiteRight. Check out the episode page at thelawschoolshow.com for links to the SiteRight website, as well as SiteRight social media and Aaron's LinkedIn profile. Thanks for being a listener. Enjoy and happy 2017. Aaron, good evening. How are you doing, man? I'm good. Good to be here. Very nice. Um, tell me about yourself without talking about law. Okay. Um, without talking about law. Well, I am a lawyer, so there's that. Um, I think you just broke the first one. I know, right? <laughs> well, okay. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm new enough as a lawyer that there's still novelty in calling myself a lawyer. I'm, I'm a 2016 call. Yes. Um, but things that I am, in addition to a lawyer, uh, is I'm a father. Um, I have uh, two kids. Uh, that is actually one of the... Well, I mean, we'll get into that, but that's one of the things that sort of made me think about what my overall working life is going to look like and whether where my, where my values are. Um, I'm also a coder. Um, I'm not formally trained. I, that said, I've been coding since I was 11 and thinking about software and thinking about how writing, uh, thinking about programming and how that can solve problems in a whole bunch of different domains has been something that's informed a lot of the different things that I've done. Um, I also came late to law. Again, okay, I broke the, I broke the rule twice. I came late to law yeah. <laughs> in that I, before I ever decided to go to law school, I was, uh, well, I was a grad student at Harvard where I studied Middle Eastern studies. I was a journalist. Um, I worked in human rights for a while. And oddly enough, in every single one of those domains, I was still finding my way to coding solutions towards things that were annoying or difficult. So that's kind of what I'm about. Um, I think a lot about how I can make information accessible to people um, and how to cut down the irritating things about work um, so that people can focus on thinking uh, as opposed to, to doing tasks. Um, so whether it's the product that I'm working on now, um, whether it's thinking about giving people better access to um, information about their legislators or information about access to justice or access to law or access to um, content that's relevant to them. Those are all things that I think about in terms of where the pain points are and where are the ways to reduce those pain points to allow people to do or to find the information that they need. How did you end up at Harvard? 
I have no, I mean, it was, it was a surprise. Uh, I, um, I, so as an undergrad, I also studied Middle Eastern studies. I mean, there's a, there's a longer story there. I, um, I, I've lived. That's another podcast. That's another, that's another <laughs> podcast. But this, the short, long story to that is that, uh, I, after, after I graduated from high school, I spent a year in Israel, um, during a really difficult time politically. Um, and that was one of the things that made me really interested about in the Middle East. And in my third year, I ended up taking a course with a particular professor where I thought, uh, which, which, which is actually on the, the Ronald Reagan administration. But I ended up writing a little bit about the, the, the Ronald Reagan, um, uh, the, uh, the Reagan administration's Middle East policy. And I realized, well, it would probably be a good idea to learn Arabic because, you know, there's a lot of sources out there. Uh, and so I did. And so I studied Arabic, uh, in undergrad. Um, and so my undergrad was in Middle Eastern studies and history. Uh, and after I graduated from, from McGill, I went and worked for a newspaper in, in Jerusalem. I worked for the Jerusalem Post for a little while. Um, enjoyed that, didn't get paid nearly enough to actually make it sustainable. Um, and so I sort of thought about what I wanted to do next. And I knew that I didn't want to stop studying the stuff I was studying. And I applied to Harvard and got in. Um, and so that was how I wound up there. It was, it was, I felt very, very lucky to have had that opportunity. Um, Harvard's an extraordinary place and there are lots of really interesting people there that I really wouldn't have had the chance to meet anywhere else. Um, so all, all that's to say, that's what took me there. It's not something that I continued with. Um, I, um, took it about as far as I wanted to go after I graduated, uh, after I finished my master's in 2009. And then I moved to Israel for another year after that and worked in, in human rights and then kind of, kind of hit the wall. And I, I, I had thought about doing a PhD in political science, also involved in the Middle East. But even then I was thinking about how I was, but I was thinking about what my exit strategy was, um, um, for how I was going to study something else or, or, or figure, figure something else out out of this thing. Cause I, I realized I wasn't really making much of a difference. Um, so that was sort of what took me there. And then was what made me pivot to law school, uh, was the fact that I, while I was one of the organizations I worked for, uh, which is called the association for civil rights in Israel, ACRI, um, did a lot of, um, judicial based activism, you'd call it a lot of test cases. Um, and so they did stuff like, so they were, this was years ago, but they did, you know, the case that led to the first female pilot for LL Israel's national airline. Yeah. Um, that was the kind of case they handled. I was working on human rights in the West Bank and Gaza. Um, but I was doing a lot of advocacy while I was there. And I, I realized that this is something that I thought I was interested in. Um, and so that's what made me pivot eventually to law school is realizing, okay, well, I wasn't going to do a PhD. Uh, I didn't really want the career uncertainty that was going to come from that, which is kind of funny when you think about it. Um, and I applied to, and, and again, it was one of those things I applied to McGill and got in. And so I thought, you know, my wife and I thought, okay, well, we were living in Boston at the time and we thought, okay, well, let's, let's move to Montreal and make a go out of this thing. Cool. So what was your impression of law school in a nutshell? Yeah, it's funny. I, I have a lot of feelings about law school. I think overall it was, it was a surprisingly good experience. I liked my colleagues there. Um, I liked my classmates. I thought that I had a really good friend network while I was there. Um, I thought that McGill is a place where there's a couple of things that are both good and bad about it. Um, one thing that's good about it, and, and I mean this in the best possible way, is that it's really, really cheap. It's yeah. really, really cheap. 
Um, and that means that it gave a, a whole lot of people who wouldn't otherwise think about going to law school the opportunity to go to law school. And there wasn't a fight. It didn't feel like there was a fight about who was going to get a job on Bay Street or not. Um, and I think there were only in my year, maybe out of a class of 150 or 160, maybe 10 of us went to, went to Bay Street. Um, more of them did the equivalent in Montreal, yeah. but you also had a lot of people like if you were, if you had in-province tuition, you really didn't like their tuition is, 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 is difficult for a lot of people and, and people have to struggle and, and I, and it, and it's hard, but it's not $30,000 hard. And so it changes what types of careers you're going to be looking at after law school. So that was what was great about it. I also got kind of bored with how abstract it was. Um, there was very little in the way of practical legal education. There was very little in the way of how to actually write a memo. Yeah. Um, and that was really frustrating to me, um, especially having having summer and then coming back and thinking, well, this is not it's not that helpful. I mean, we should be we should have been writing memos every week because at the very least we would have been better writers at the end of the at the end of our time at McGill. So there's a lot of room for improvement. Um, but I'm I'm a big fan of going to an excellent to the finest cheapest legal education you can get. Yeah. <laughs> um, and those two things together because it it really does open up the the realm of possibilities. And I don't think I could have done what I'm doing now if I had a hugely significant uh, student debt to to think about. Yeah, those are heavy bags to carry. Yeah, you can't get around as nimbly. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. If you could give one piece of advice to someone starting out on their first day of law school, what would it be? Mm. Okay. Okay, so the legal, the practice of law is changing enormously. And what's what sucks is that you're going to have no idea about how it's changing until you actually start trying to practice as a lawyer. And that means that means that unless you're going to a law school that I don't know of, you're, no one's telling you really about what's happening. No one's telling you about what, what's expected of you and no one's telling you about what those expect, how those expectations are changing. Um, and so going into law school, I think that somebody, somebody entering law school should think very, very carefully about what it is they want to be getting out of law school. And that's a challenge for a lot of people, because for a lot of people, law school is, I guess I'll go to law school. It's kind of a, def a default option. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It was kind of a default option for me. I realized I didn't want to do a PhD. Um, yeah. and I didn't really have anything else going on. So I guess I went to law school, but my advice is to start hustling as early as you can in terms of talking to as many people as you can about what they do, um, about what they like, what they do, what they don't like about it, what they do and learn to code is the other thing. Learn, yeah. learn to code as much as you can. You don't have to be an awesome coder, but if you can, if you can get to a point where you can describe to somebody what machine learning is and how it's going to make legal the practice of law change you will be so far ahead so there are technical skills that they are definitely not going to teach you in law school but which you can pick up on your own because they're not that hard um, which will serve you uh which will be enormously valuable once you enter the job market yeah i think one theme over your past two answers that's really valuable is that law school law students continuously underestimate the value of having true 
career options once they graduate. Right. And they, they think that they will by default. Right. But don't realize the circumstance they'll be in in terms of like financial and, you know, the, the need to actually hit the road and start working and what, what that's going to look like based on your, your education and your skill set. So that's exactly it. And like the days when you could just get an awesome job are over. And the jobs that you can get right now, let's be honest, are not all that awesome. Mm. Um, and so there's actually somebody else that I want you to talk to, which I'll, I'll actually maybe talk at the end of the podcast, who, yeah. who would be a good person. But So I spoke to her. I'm, I'm, a, I'm on the executive of the Toronto Legal Hackers, uh, which is a group of people in Toronto who think about um, creative solutions, involve, creative technical solutions that somehow involve the law. Legal yeah. Hackers we can talk about also, but is, a, is, a, is actually a global movement of people who think about that stuff. Um, and so it, it combines people who think about issues like access to justice. Um, so one of our, one of the people who shows up is a guy who, who, who founded an app called Legal Swipe, which is a way for you to very quickly get information about your rights when you are arrested by the police. Um, there are also people who do things like um, civic action. So um, figuring out ways to make open data more available and then connecting that into a legal context. Cool. So I met this person at, at, uh, at um, Toronto Legal Hackers. She is also a 2016 call. She articled at a large finance, financial institution in, in Toronto, uh, didn't get hired back, and, and was sort of figuring out what the heck she was going to do. And she ended up, uh, but she knows how to code. And she entered the... Um, the Ontario Security Commission had a, uh, called Reg Hack, Reg, Reg, Regulations Hack, which was yeah. a hackathon for, uh, financial regulations. And her team came in third, and one of the people, uh, from OSC came up to her and said, came up to her and said, I'm gonna hire you. I wanna hire you. And the way you, and, and all that's to say is, there are lots of different ways to build your profile as somebody who's looking for a job. And, it's worse when you're basically like everybody else, and it's better when you have something distinguishing about you that shows you get not just how not just what the law is, but how the law can be applied, and how the law can be applied effectively. Yeah, nice. Let's so talk. You should, you should talk to that person also because she's a great a great interview candidate. Cool. We'll lock that down. Yeah. Um, describe to me your articling experience in two minutes. Hesitating here because I want to make sure I say the right things. I like your approach. <laughs> Articling is really hard. Um, I learned a lot. The things I learned were partially about the practice of law, partially about how to how to function in a in a dense corporate environment, um, and partly about how about managing a crushing workload. Those are, I think, the three things that you do as an articling student. The fact of the matter is that you're not all that useful to the people who hire you as an articling student because you don't know much. That's kind of the fault of law schools. Um, and that is a whole separate discussion about what law schools should be doing, whether it should be training people for practice or whether it should be training people, whether it should be giving people the tools to think academically about the law. But the fact is, if you do try to practice, you will be at a disadvantage along with it. I guess a disadvantage isn't the right term because nobody is... You're all comparatively the same level of disadvantage, but you don't know much about how to actually practice the law, and you have to learn it from scratch. And so there's a lot of just 
learning how to do the thing. Um, and that was, so that was what my experience was like. A lot of running around trying to learn how to do the thing I was asked to do. I was very lucky in that my experience, nobody was a jerk to me. And I've heard horror stories that thankfully did not apply to me. Yeah. Um, no, I didn't have to get anybody's laundry. Uh, I didn't have to. Nobody, nobody screamed in my face. Um, I also was, to be perfectly honest, less willing to shoulder an enormous burden than other people were in my class. And partially that's because I'm a little bit older. Yeah. And partially that's because I have responsibilities that are outside of, outside of my, my work. I mean, the way I described it was that my version of capacity looks different than what other people's version of capacity is. Yeah. And that's because I have to go home and pick up my kids. And, you know, I would, I would wake up. It was a, I, I mean, I didn't sleep all that much while I was an art working student. I would be, I eventually figured out that if I got up at five in the morning, I could get a solid two hours of work when it was quiet. And then I could, you know, and that's in addition to whatever I was doing in the evenings. Yeah. But that was, that made it work. Um, but on the other hand, the fact that I left at 5 p.m. every day, like, that showed up in my performance review. Like, someone said, well, Aaron leaves at 5 p.m. Aaron, Aaron does a great job, but he leaves at 5 p.m. every day, and I'm not sure how that's going to work when he's done a closing. Yeah. I'm like, you know what? I don't really know either. I mean, maybe it won't work. Yeah. So, you know. It's probably best that we both know that. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess so, although that's, that's kind of horrendous when you think about it. Yeah. Um, so my art experience, like I learned, I, I, I learned, I think, a lot. My experience is overall positive. I certainly got a chance to see where the room for improvement on the tech and software side is, which is an area that I'm interested in. So where are the pain points that lawyers experience yeah. and how can, and how can those be solved in a way that lets them do their job better? Um, I guess my takeaway from, from an art, from my article experience and, and seeing what associates did is what's the overall breakdown of busy work versus thinking work? Yeah. How much time are, was I spending sorting, copying, photocopy, photocopying, cutting and pasting, clipping versus how much was I thinking and learning? Yeah. And it's a dismal ratio and that needs to change. Because we're not clerks. Excuse me, I shouldn't say that. But we're not. We're, there's, there's, like, there's like Bartleby the Scrivener. Yeah. If you're sitting in a giant room copying stuff down, that's not what we were trained to do. Right. Um, so yeah, that's that was my takeaway. When did it become clear to you that you needed to start on SiteRight? So SiteRight actually, the genesis for SiteRight is actually earlier than being an articling student. So I, my story was when I was at Harvard when I wrote my thesis. I had four different choices of software that was going to generate my bibliography and footnotes for me. So I never actually did it. I never had to do it. I read the books and I cited them. And, you know, you have to cite authorities because that's how it, that's how a scholarship is built. But the actual, you know, looking up in the MLA guide, do I put the comma here or there, I never had to do because I used a program called EndNote. <clears throat> and so when I got to law school... In our first week, we had our first legal research and writing class, and the representatives of the McGill Law Journal came down um, from their office and said, here's how you cite. And I thought, ha-ha, I'll just use the software. Well, there's no software. 
doesn't, doesn't exist. And so then I got on to the McGill, then I was an editor of the Log Journal and actually an editor of the Site Guide, of the eighth edition of the Site Guide. All this time I'm thinking, this is something that we should be automating. Certainly by the time I get to practice, you want, you want to do this by hand. Maybe nobody developed the software because there's no market for law students. So I get to, I, I start working as an Artisan student. They say, Aaron, do a book of authorities. And I think, okay, sure, where's the software? And they go, haha, uh, there's no software. And so it's me up late, in, late at night fielding calls from, from associates and partners who want to change this and that. And I'm thinking, this is, this is ridiculous. This is not difficult technically to do. And so, that is how I, that was my, that was how I ended up thinking about site rights. So I've been, so I've been playing around with the idea for a while. Um, while I was in, while I was, uh, in law school, my thought was, well, this is something you could just sort of build in a weekend and then release as an open source project. And then realizing that there's actually a paying need for this is, and, and maybe we'll work on building a product that actually is usable as opposed to something that just can technically do it. And so that's where we're at right now. It's not yeah. just building out the core technology because Frankly, it's out there. It's not. It's not that hard to do. It's the user interface and making it easy for lawyers who are up late at night, um, and making it honestly a, a a delightful experience to use our product. So the the what we're we're, we're building right now is the user interface on top of some solutions that I've kind of been hacking together for years. Cool. What is SiteRight? SiteRight is a tool for litigators that helps them automate the tasks, the research tasks that they and writing tasks that they right now do by hand. Right. Easiest way to describe it is a book of authorities is a bunch of PDFs of, uh, of the cases that you cited in a factum or a memo with black bars next to the paragraphs uh, that were you specifically cited. Okay, so you cite RV Oaks at page 22. Okay, well, you have to include in, 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 in a document that you submit to court. Okay, well, you have to, along with the um, factum that you wrote to the to the court, you have to include Oaks and a black bar next to paragraph twenty-two. That's so that the judge and the opposing counsel can actually read through your uh, factum and and see what authority you cited and actually verify it. Right now, it takes hours because you, articling student, have to go through the factum and extract all the. Uh, and, and just like find what okay what cases are all there. You, the articling student, have to open download all those cases and put them onto your hard drive. You, the articling student, have to put black bars on the right hand side and then print it to PDF and then send it to the printers to get it all done. And by the way, you're working on a deadline. The lawyers are changing things all the time, and so you're constantly at the last minute will be you delete one case and then all the numbering has to be redone again, and it takes hours. And it, it, it is, it's the kind of thing where a 30 second change in Microsoft Word can result in an additional two or three hours of actual labor to do the actual backend stuff. So the simplest way to describe SiteWrite is a thing that automates the extra drudgery of, uh, preparing a document for, uh, for court, preparing yeah. a litigation document for court. In a, in the bigger picture, what we allow our users to do is create a centralized core of knowledge that they can share with each other about what they've of what cases are relevant that they've used over the course of however many years. Um, a good way to describe that is okay. Well, I'm on 
a long-running litigation matter. Um, it's a long-running case. It's a major pharmaceutical company. This thing has been going on for years. And one of the things that we have to deal with is for each new document we submit, we submit to court, we have to base it on precedence on our system, and we don't know how good the case law is within those precedents. We also don't know when it comes time to write a new document, what are the most, what are the most useful cases um, for, what are the most highly cited cases that we've used in the past? All this is information that you don't have right now, but it's information that SiteWrite is able to generate just by keeping track of which, cite, which cases the various lawyers in your firm have cited and in which documents. So we do a couple of things. We work on document automation. We can automate some of the boring stuff. We also link documents on your system with research. So instead of having, instead of writing a, writing a memo or a brief, doing all this research and then losing all the research when you're done, you can actually keep it and tie the two together so that when I open up a document, all the research is, is associated with it. And in the bigger picture, what we let you do is connect documents directly to the web so that they can note themselves up and they can do the research for you so that you don't have to do it yourself. So we connect pipes together. We connect data flows in a way that, that removes, the user, removes the lawyer from the process and lets lawyers focus on the things they do best which is thinking and writing, as opposed to cutting, copying, and pasting. Nice. So I think we answered the problem of, you know, what issues is this remedying? Basically, it automates the process of a lawyer having to enter citations while they're drafting. It automates the process of a lawyer having to build indices and book of authorities. It vastly accelerates how you can note up cases and also how you can find specific precedent for the exact type of FACTA you are drafting. Correct. Anything else? That's a pretty good concept. That's a pretty good, that's a pretty good summary of what we do. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's cool. I saw a uh, I saw a demo prior to us doing this interview, and as a litigator, I can say that I was definitely intrigued, and uh, I hope my firm gets it. This is the product that I wish I'd had as an artist. No, I mean I've I I can see I just you know you know something's good when you see it and it makes absolute sense, right. and you can I immediately identify where it's going to. Um, give you efficiencies. Right. And SiteRate did that in 35 seconds right. of seeing it happen. And that's like the fun thing about building this thing out is that now we're talking big picture about where legal technology is going. And I mentioned machine learning earlier that there are basically two ways that you that, that technology is going to be applied to law. Um, one is to do process automation to sort of to automate um, tasks that are easily automatable. Yeah. So we're going to call it the low-hanging fruit. Um, one one thing to look at is a, a company called Closing Folders, um, which basically is the same idea, but for closing, for for closing. For the law students out there who've never had to do, who've never worked in a law firm yet, a closing is reams and reams of paper 
organize. So when 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 you finally finish a deal and come and Megacorp A buys Megacorp B, there's a lot of paper that's got to get signed and a lot of a lot of filing documents that have to be a lot of documents that have to be filed in relation to that also that have to be signed and initial. And so you have a closing room which is just racks upon racks of very carefully organized folded folders, each of which will have like three copies of something. And the principals on the deal are going to come in and they're just going to sign, 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 sign. They're going to go around the room. There's this giant conference table signing everything. Setting up a closing room takes hours and it involves mostly printing and organizing stuff in folders. So this guy basically came up with this, with with a program that does it for you. It's a closing, it's called a closing folders. It has the whole automatic closing room. It's just there. And so that's the that's the one side of where legal technology is at is let's take a, a task which is really hard which is really horrible um, that involves a lot of paper shuffling and automate it and then there's the other side which is robo lawyers and there's a lot of there's a lot of promises being made about how technology is basically going to automate what it is that lawyers do on a more conceptual sense so um, uh, one company that's gotten a lot of press is called Ross. Um, which uses um, IBM's Watson engine to u- apply artificial intelligence to the law. There's a lot of promises being made there about what can be done, what can be automated through an, through machine learning. The bottom line is those are really hard problems. They're hard problems because the domain of the problem is very hard to specify. What are you doing as a lawyer? You do a lot of things as a lawyer. I write emails sometimes. I advise clients sometimes. Sometimes I write memos. Sometimes I try to schedule an appointment. And because there's a lot of different things that have to get done, all of which require a certain level of flexibility, there's a lot of work that has to get done to teach the system what it is it has to get done. And what you end up with is either a, a jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none um, situation, or AI working in a very, very narrow domain. Yeah. Um, what I like about the app that I'm developing is that it has nothing to do with AI yet. It could in the future. If we decided we wanted to link up if our, our, our files in a way that would allow you to, to predictively to predict what's going to be the most relevant case for you based on your organization, that's something we can do later in version five or version six. Like we're, we're, we're working on version one, but like way down the road, that's something yeah. we could do. But we're not trying to build that from the get-go. Um, so it's all, all that's to say is you said this is something that you understand in 30 seconds. That's exactly what we're aiming for. It's something that is a hard, a hard project that takes a long time that we can solve today. Nice. So let's talk about who can benefit from SiteRight. I mean, obviously a lawyer, obviously an articling student or a summer student. Who else are we talking about here? Organizations as a whole? Right. Is it an enterprise software, enterprise product? Or is this... So our, our target customers here, well, first of all, I should say that any lawyer, any lawyer could probably benefit from SiteRight because yeah. as long as your research, as long as you do some kind of research at some point, this will be useful to you yeah. because what SiteRight lets you do is save your research for later. Save your research, link it up to a client, to a, to a matter, and find it again in the future. Um, our target customers then are, big picture, lawyers, more practically litigators because litigators are the ones who have the biggest pain points when it comes to generating these types of documents. Yeah. Um, we are aiming initially at lawyers in larger law firms. Um, and that's partially because, I mean, there's, there's, there are business decisions for why we're targeting them. Um, 
I think that said, I think that any lawyer who generates who generates documents could use this thing. Um, there are also there's a specific interest then for lawyers who are who do not bill by the hour. Um, that's one of the other major changes which is coming to the legal profession, which is that clients since 2008, clients have begun pushing back heavily on the billable hour model because for a number of reasons, um, among them, it's expensive. Billable hours are expensive. Another thing is it's very hard to predict. And when you are a general counsel hiring external counsel, one of the things you want to do is bring down your overall legal spend and then smooth it out. Yeah. If you bring it down and smooth it out. So not just I want to pay less, but what I really don't like as a general counsel is a lot of, um, if you look at my, 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 how much I'm spending on legal services as like a graph, like I don't want a big spike in the first quarter, a dip in the second quarter, another spike in the third quarter, and then a huge spike in the fourth quarter. That's really hard to predict. And from a business perspective, that's really, that's really difficult. That makes things really challenging. And so general counsels are on, are under a lot of pressure to at least make the, to bring down, bring down spend, smooth it out. And so that pressure gets transferred onto lawyers who are working under, uh, who, who, who started working under, not on a a non billable hour model. We're going to call that an alternative fee arrangement, yeah. which incentivizes them. So a, an AFA might not actually result in less cost to the client. It could be ten million. It might be ten million dollars on a billable hour. It might be ten million dollars on an AFA. But an AFA is still preferable because it's predictable. And so once you start working on AFAs, though, the value proposition for internally within the law firm changes because you're not thinking about. There, you, there's less of an incentive to just rack up the hours because those, the 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 more time a process takes, it's all about efficiency. It's all about efficiency, exactly. So that's exactly what we're aiming at: is if you if efficiency is something that is prop that is valuable to you, you will care about setting rate. If you're a litigator and you think about efficiency, you will care about setting rate. So, law firms who are working on AFAs, um, lawyers who bill on contingency, uh, personal injury are all areas that we're targeting, and then there are organizations that do a lot of litigation so um government uh the, the attorney ministry of the attorney general um police departments if you're doing a lot of def uh, if, if you're in court a lot this is something that's going to be useful to you and even better is if you're in court and you're not billing by the hour yeah and i think the other aspect there is that the more people in the organization that are using site right the more value it becomes to each individual user that's exactly right so what we're what site right lets you do is say what did show me all the doc show me show me all the cases that i cited show me all the cases that you chris cited show me all the cases that everybody in my team working on the jones matter cited yeah show me all the cases that are associated with the jones matter site used by anyone in the organization um and you can expand outward from there so I can start, and, and, and I can then go backwards and say, let me, let me search through all the documents that I wrote that were connected to the Jones matter yeah. that were also involved site right. So it's a, what we're doing is, the people who benefit from site right are anybody in the organization, because what we're doing is um, facilitating knowledge management. Um, right now, the way you find relevant stuff is just by searching. And you can have really good Google-like searches on your system, but it's still just plain old searching by keyword. There's no shortcut to finding the more effective or, or the, the, the best kind of document. Yeah. So we're providing a shortcut. Our proxy is, did other people in your organization use the, use a case? And, or how many documents cite that case? 
And that, we feel, is actually a pretty good proxy for relevancy that lets you escape the need to constantly keyword search to find things over and over, and over again. Cool. So we're going to wrap this up pretty soon. Before we get there, so what stage are you at right now in terms of the development of SiteRight? So we've developed the core technology. Um, we have built, we've proved that it works. We know that we can do things like generate the book of authorities. Um, we are right now working on the user interface. Um, that's critical. Um, we are um, right now actively soliciting our, our, our fundraising. Um, we've incorporated and we're, we're a startup. So we're, we're um, right now trying to raise, uh, we're on a capital raise right now to see if we can hire the developers to actually build this thing up further. Yeah. Um, we've gotten a lot of interest from law firms, um, uh, both large and small, um, and all of them are very, very eager to see the product. Um, some of them have already started making commitments about deploying it. Nice. Um, but all that said, we are working flat out on building the product, getting it ready to go so that we can put it in people's hands and start working on it. What, what has been the single largest challenge? And this could be either like from the personal side of, you know, being the founder and CEO of Sardright. Or it could be from the purely, you know, you know, business or operation or developmental side of creating the product. What has been the single largest challenge from, you know, going from zero, going from idea to today? Well, first is realizing that ideas are not worth all that much. Yeah. That um, having a cool idea is really, like, everybody's got cool ideas. Um, execution is really hard. And I've never done this before. Like, I don't have... I didn't go to business school. Um, I had to teach myself pretty much everything. Um, I've done a, a lot of meeting with people about um, just asking. As I, I've talked to as many people as I can about as much as I think I can talk to them about about how to run a business, how to st how to start up a project, how to how to how to actually do what it is that I'm doing. Um, and I'm lucky that I've had really good um, mentors. But there's a lot of self-education here. Um, someone told me at the very beginning that if you want to learn about business, just start a, just start a business. Just start a startup, start a business, and yeah. you'll learn. And they were right. Like, that's exactly where I've gotten to. And I, I can say that from the time I started to the time from where I am now, I've learned things like how to pitch, um, how to make a meeting with people who you want to pitch to, um, how to, how to put together a business plan. How to think about marketing, how to think about distribution, how to think about pricing. Um, these are all really cool. These are all really fun and interesting things that I actually didn't fully realize going in. Um, especially as somebody who's kind of a hacker who just sort of puts things, there's a thing called a hacker's mentality where like you think of a cool product and you just sort of build it over a weekend and think, okay, well, you build a better mousetrap and the world will, will, will be a path to your door. And that's not entirely true. Like you need a good mouse trap, but you also need to figure out how you're going to sell the mouse trap, who you're going to sell the mouse trap to, how much it costs to make the mouse trap, yeah. where you're going to minimize the costs there, um, and all that other stuff is stuff that you have to just sort of figure out as you go. Um, so yeah, that's what I mean by the 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 execution. The ideas are one thing; the execution is another. And learning how to execute has been the thing that I've had to go from zero on. And it's been, uh, so you know, yeah. the main problem from going to zero to today is everything. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, you know, you know what? It's, it's like, kind of like, it's all been oh, the hardest God. part. Oh my God. Cause you know, people all day long, you do this, I do this, 
the person on the bus does this. They go, wouldn't it be nice if? Yeah. Wouldn't it be nice if the bus was a little faster? But right? I, th- I, I think you, I think in a roundabout way, you make a really good point. Is that there is just like, if you choose to go at it on your own and to really develop your idea and execute on it, you are going to be faced with the challenge every day. Right. Like there's just no two ways about it. Unless you somehow already like, this is your third startup and you've already gone down this road a couple of times. So you can cut some corners. Like assuming it's your first time, then every day there's going to be something that you have to deal with that you haven't dealt with before. Yeah. I mean, I'm lucky. So I also uh, have a business partner on this. And so that's been hugely helpful in that I've got someone to at least divide the workload on. Yeah. Can you, uh, can you say not, his or her name? Uh, his name is Ariel Naxon. Yeah. Um, and he's also my, he's, he, he um, came on a little, uh, quite recently, actually. Um, also really excited on the, about the project. Um, he has a stronger business background than I do. Um, and uh, a really, really good design sense as well. Cool. And it's been great to work with him on um, building this thing out and just dividing up the workload like I said, it's been hugely helpful. Yeah. Um, and if you, you know, it's not, it's not totally necessary to have a business partner. I mean, there, there are different schools of thought on that, but I found it to be very helpful, um, in terms of just, you know, bringing things down to a manageable level. Definitely. But yeah, the, 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 the greatest challenge is everything. There's, <laughs> there's a huge, there's a lot that's involved in running in, in starting something up. I feel like that's that's the title of like yeah. your, your memoir or your startup book. Yeah, the greatest yeah. challenge is that. Right? I mean, yeah, I'm pretty sure somebody's written that book yeah. already. Um, hopefully, somebody's made more money out of it than I have. Um, all right, what's your vision? Let, let's. I don't want to say like what's your five year vision, but you know, taking a chunk out of this thing, assuming it's like you know it's viable. You've got a product. It's being used right so you know we're past that like what do you see for this what's its potential and what's your role along the way so i want to see this as the first stage in an overall concept towards fixing the easy problems for law firms so i would like this to be i would like this to be in every single litigation shop in the u.s and canada that's my goal um and there's a big market there a lot of people litigate um, and this is a tool that helps them do it. Um, that's my vision of the product. And the, the next step after that is think about how we're going to feed this into even more processes. So how are we going to, um, recycle documents? Like I mentioned this before, the AI side, um, how can you start generating a, if you, if you have a big enough data set and you've got enough documents on your system, you can tell an a, 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 a machine learning algorithm to start generalizing and saying, here are the more common paragraphs that you cite. Um, all that's to get you to a place where you don't have to write the boilerplate. Yeah. Um, that's where I'd like to go with this thing next. Um, but bigger picture is I'd like to see this thing be useful for as many people as possible. Nice. All right. I think we did it. Good. If people want to get more information, where can they go? All right. So you can go to www.siteright.net. SiteRight is spelled C-I-T-E-R-I-G-H-T. Site like citations. Um, SiteRight.net. You can also check us out on Twitter. Uh, Site underscore right. I'm not sure who has the actual site right. So site underscore (laughs) right. Uh, We're on Twitter as well. Um, And a Facebook page to be up shortly. Cool. All right, Aaron, thanks for the time, man. Good. Thanks for having me. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. 
You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or at our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook and get the latest updates from The Law School Show. Career advancing advice, right to your earbuds.